So we thank you that as we step into this week where we're going to be celebrating the freedom we enjoy in this country on July 4th, we just thank you for the freedom we do enjoy. The many freedoms, but the one we're experiencing tonight where we can come and worship you, praise you, dig into your word, spend time together in fellowship and community publicly, God, with no fear of persecution, God, no fear of repression, no fear of violence, God. We thank you for this nation. God, we pray that it would continue to work towards being a nation that has liberty and justice for all. We know there's work to be done, God, but inspire us, drive us toward those things. We know justice and freedom, those are things in the Bible that you care about and you love. So, God, continue to help us as a nation. And, God, even as that video said, that there is a freedom that many have not yet known because we know that there's a freedom that's only found in you and your Holy Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. God, so I pray that here tonight you would work freedom in our hearts and our minds. Free us from wrong perspectives. Free us from addiction. Free us from sickness, Lord God. Free us so that we can go and proclaim that freedom to those that have not yet heard it or know about it. The freedom of the gospel, the freedom of your grace, the freedom of your mercy, and the freedom of your love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. But let's be honest, July 4th sneak up on anybody else? It, like, they were talking, like, what should we, how should we, in, and I'm like, in service already? Like, isn't that a month out? No, it's next week, July 4th. It's hot and for some reason, when it gets really hot in July, that's when everybody throws their cookouts. We're going to be eating hot dogs, right? We're going to be in pools. What else happens at July 4th? We're going to be, everything's going to be red, white, and blue. There's going to be fireworks. Yep, you're probably going to hear the national anthem. You might sing the national anthem. You'll probably hear various renditions of the national anthem. And FYI, nobody's topped Whitney Houston's 91 Super Bowl version of the national anthem. Many have tried. Many have tried. Uh, many have failed. Some have failed miserably. Um, we're in the social media era, so I can remember a couple years ago, uh, Christina Aguilera, like, forgot the words, flubbed the words. And within, like, seconds, the whole world knew because of Twitter and Facebook. Uh, but she's not alone. Many, many, many people have done this over the years. I was doing research. Y'all remember Michael Bolton, right? <laughs> some people in the back, we got some young people here. They're like, ah. Michael Bolton, right, he uh, had the words written down on his hand, and he got busted trying to sneak a peek while he was singing the national anthem to remember the words. But I, I think I have, I have grace for all these people. Um, one, because I've, like tonight, had to lead worship. But two, some of the words in the Star Spangled Banner are, are weird, right? Like, think about it. Oh, say does that Star Spangled Banner yet wave. Have you ever, like, said those words before a sporting event and thought, what on earth is spangled, right? Like, can I be spangled? Like, can this room be, is that banner spangled? Like, what on earth is a spangle? And what are we talking about here? It's in the name of the national anthem. It must be important, right? Well, it just means a shiny ornament, like a star sequined banner. But I don't, I don't see any sequins on my flags. I don't know if, like, what was, what's the, Dolly, Betsy? Who's the one that did the first flag? Betsy Ross, thank you. I don't know if she bedazzled the first flag or something, and then we just don't do that anymore. I don't know why we say spangled. There's probably a history there. Maybe some of you know you can, you can tell me after service. I just know this weekend there's going to be thousands, if not of millions of people, singing those words having no clue what spangled even means. right? And I share that because most of us, many of us, have probably grown up in the United States, sung that song Saying those words, a lot of kids are like, what is, what is donzerly light? What does the word donzerly mean? And, you know, like, you just sing those words. You don't even think about what you're saying. And it's kind of similar in the church. If you've grown up in the church or you've been in the church for any amount of time, five years, ten years, one year, it's beautiful, the community of the church. 
But sometimes it can be an echo chamber where we just say these words over and over and over again, like gospel, salvation, grace, and mercy. And we never, like, pause to think, what do these, what do these mean? What are the definitions of these words that we're just talking about again and again in this community? <laughs> wasn't me, I swear. <laughs> and then there's others of us, right? Maybe you don't care about the definition of those words. You don't care about the definition of those words because your relationship with God doesn't define your day-to-day living. Like your interactions, your conversations, God doesn't define those. So these definitions of these words, it's kind of like, eh, whatever. Whatever camp you're in, I hope this series, as we work through it, will be a, a, a spark in your fire, will ignite something in you. Because this series, we're simply talking about how the definition of our words can make a world of a difference. And the quote that sparked this whole thing was by the poet Christian Wyman. He asked this question, does the decay of belief among educated people in the West, which we'll get to in a second, precede the decay of language used to define and explore belief, or do we sense the fire of belief fading in us only because the words are sodden with overuse and imprecision and will not burn? He's saying, what came first, chicken or the egg, right? These words we use are the unbelief. How do we get here? And the fire of belief he's talking about, that's kind of hard to measure. But measuring other things, like the amount of time we spend in our word in America, the amount of time we spend in prayer, come together and worship, those are dwindling by most measures and most surveys in our culture. You know, recently we looked at last week the Journal of Positive Psychology. It researched something a little different, researched our words. Now, apparently Google has some massive database, because Google would, of like everything printed and online from like, what is it, 1500 to 2008. Newspaper articles, books, maybe not everything, but as much as possible in this database, 1,500 to 2,008. So they took 50 religious words, like the fruits of the spirit, like modesty or grace or mercy as well, and they ran them through this database. And what they found is that in the last 100 years, so this small window at the end, in the last 100 years, 74% of those words, the use of them has decreased. We're not talking about like a couple percent. We're talking about over 50%. Most of our religious vocabulary and how we use it has been cut in half. Why do I share that? Well, Jesus said humans can't live by bread alone, but by the nourishment that comes from God's words and God's word. Like like words are vessels of spiritual nourishment and knowledge. And yet in many ways, we're starving ourselves of the life within them because we're not reading them. Or we're not talking about them because we're confused about what they even mean. How could I talk about the gospel with somebody who doesn't know Jesus in a coffee shop if I don't even, like, I'm not even confident because I don't, I don't know what it means. We're spiritually malnourished by our own doing. You know, Proverbs 18:21 says that words can bring death or life. And so often when we think about that verse, we think about, like, the totality of our conversations and our, and our uh, ideas we put forth with our mouth. But what about each individual word? When we lose depth in our spiritual vocabulary, when we lose definitions or when words disappear altogether, like when's the last time you used the word uh, lament or liturgy or creed, maybe even confession, we lose something more than just words, we lose life. Words have the power of life. We lose life in our worship, we lose life in our walk. And like I said last week, this series is not about redefining these words, but simply taking the definition deeper, or you could say elevating the definition so that we can uh, have a higher definition view of life around us. It's about taking biblical words and reclaiming the definitions we no longer consider with words we no longer use. So for instance, tonight, I want to look at prayer. 
the spiritual discipline of prayer. And I want to look at Psalm 62 because there's two words in Psalm 62 that adds depth to our definition of it and can shoot life into our prayer life. But how many of you guys have heard of Tim Keller? Author, pastor, uh, speaker at conferences. He is prolific. Uh, he recently came out with a book that he wrote with his wife, Kathy Keller. I believe it was called Songs of Jesus. And it's a devotional, and it works through the book of Psalms. So every day you work through a, a bit of Psalms, and you, you pray a prayer based on that psalm. Tim Keller also recently published, because, again, he's prolific, a book simply called Prayer. It's about prayer. And within it, he talks about this habit he's had for the last 20 years. So for the last 20 years, every month, he's read Psalms. Not just read Psalms, but like the totality, all 150 chapters every month for the last 20 years. He's had this focus. And so he was asked why, and his explanation for this habit, why he would read Psalms, all of the Psalms, all 150, every single month for 20 years. It was about prayer. His explanation was that there are other prayers in the Bible, but no other place where you have an entire course of theology in prayer form. And no other place where you have every possible heart condition represented, along with the way to process that situation before God. Even the Lord's Prayer is more a summary of what we must pray, while the Psalms are a comprehensive program in how to pray it. So tonight, with that thought on prayer and that thought on the Psalms, I want to read Psalm 62. I want to read it in its entirety. I'm reading it from this little New King, New King James Version Bible, uh, Psalm chapter 62. It's a psalm that David wrote, and it starts in verse 1. It says, truly, my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And God is my glory, or excuse me, my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in oppression nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. Let's pray briefly. Holy Spirit, you say that you will guide us in all truth. We ask that you would guide us in your truth tonight from your word here in Psalm 62 and throughout your Bible. Speak to us, God, so that there can be fruit in our prayer life, in our, and in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. But I mentioned that book by Keller, and it's a good thing Steph stepped out because I got it from the library about a year ago. And uh, I don't want her to know that's an option, right? Because when I, when I want to read a book, especially like study a book, I want to buy it. So my bookshelves at home are like overflowing. There's books on the floor sometimes. You know, they make their way onto different tables throughout the house. And because uh, I like to dog ear the pages, underline, circle, draw arrows, write in the margins. You can't do that with a library book. I like to occasionally, Raj will knock my coffee over on my book. Like, 
I make a mess of my books, so I like to own them. And then if, I, if I'm studying and I'm like, oh, I need to go back to that passage, or I want to quote this author, I can just pull it off my shelf right there in my own home. Now, Steph would much rather me use, like, the library and their shelves to store these books and take them out when I want them, but honestly, it's not a bad plan. It's not a bad strategy, but I might not have to worry about it much longer because libraries are closing more and more. Federal funding for libraries has been cut in half since the year 2000. Like less than half of Americans have visited the library in the past year. Who's been to the library in the past year? About half. <laughs> Not bad. We're a good representation, right? Less than half of Americans have visited a library in the past year. Like they're going the way of, of wristwatches. Dustin, you got a nice one. I see it right there. I haven't worn a wristwatch since like my freshman year of college because once you get a phone, you just, it's right there. Think about words that are going to expire we're not going to use anymore. Like, you talk about the hands on a clock, pretty soon kids are going to be like, what are you even talking about, right? Turning back the hands on a clock, clockwise and counterclockwise, we just have numbers on our phone, right? Or even just reading a phone. Sometimes teachers are telling me their kids can't do that, the one that's on the wall with the hands, because we just look at our phones. Wristwatchers going. Cameras. We bought a really nice camera before we adopted Raj and went to India. I barely use the thing anymore. My camera on my phone is like just as nice. That thing's just gathering dust in my house like a paperweight. And much the same way, our reading is going that way. And I'm not saying we don't read, but often we're wading waist deep through blogs, posts on the internet, different thoughts here and there, and rarely or not as much do we dive into books. And let me be an English major snob for a little bit because I graduated with an English major. What are we missing? Books in their long form, they're just a method that saves us from life's frenetic pace. Saves us from this idea that every thought of value can be boiled down to a tweet or a, a social media post. And it saves us from an existence where the only words we consider are the ones that are currently trending. Right? Those, and it's not just pace. You think about the library, it's, it's the noise, it's the silence. You know, I often go to write my sermons at Starbucks, the one over there at Chesapeake Square. And uh, I go in there and I throw on my noise-canceling headphones because they're often blasting, you know, Rihanna, top 40 hits, pretty loudly. But uh, that's where I go to write my sermons. But I went there a couple weeks ago and I threw on my headsets. And then I don't remember how long it took me to realize it, but I kind of looked up and was like, there's no music playing. And, I, and me and the manager there are like BFFs because I basically live there. It's my second office. And she was like, yeah, the system broke. The amplifier busted. We don't have any music. And I basked in it for like, only lasted like two days. But it was a glorious two days. Maybe you think, why don't you just go to the library where it's quiet? Well, unlike the library, the Starbucks AC is set below 80. Uh, the Wi-Fi is faster than my home's dial-up when I was a kid, and there's coffee, like lots of coffee. So I still go to Starbucks, even with the music. But it made me pause and think, how wild is it that when I'm confronted with silence, it almost stops me in my track? Because there's noise everywhere. The restaurants we go to eat at after service, they'll be playing music. Maybe you'll go shopping tonight. That place will be playing music. And I just took it as evidence that, man, I need more silence in my life. Not the silence that comes with resignation and surrender at the end of a long day that's inevitable as you crash at the end of the day. I'm talking about the silence of renewal and rejuvenation that prevents the burnout. Psalm 62, it opens with the verse, truly my soul waits for God. From him comes my salvation. And maybe you read that and think, yeah, it must be nice to be able to step into silence and just sit with God. 
No kids like with a problem needing a refill on their drink or, or they just broke something or their brother's touching them or any of that. Like you could just sit and be silent. Must be nice, right? But then look at what David's going through in this moment. He writes that he's being verbally assaulted by his enemies. And in the New Living Translation, it says, so many enemies against one man, all of them trying to kill me. It's like, okay, I don't really want to trade anymore. You can have that. I'll stick with, you know, my kids and the fact it's hard for me to find silence. But I don't want to harp on the differences in difficulty. We've talked about it before. You can, you can drown in the ocean, a creek, a puddle, a lake. God cares. God wants to help us no matter what depth or difficulty we're in. But I want to point at our common outlet, one we often neglect, which is prayer. And Psalm 62, it's, it's like Keller's quote. It's processing our situations and heart conditions before God in prayer. And if you read through Psalms like Tim Keller does every single month, you realize David, he goes through the whole gamut. His prayers rage, they cry out for vengeance, they ask God to send help, they give God praise, they cry out again and again for deliverance in times of need, because as we realize in Psalm 62, David was going through it. And that's the beauty of the Psalms. David keeps it real. Prayer isn't all measured and calm and polite. Sometimes prayer looks like shouting at the sky. And guess what? God can handle that. He's big enough for it. David says in verse 8 of Psalm 62, he says, pour out your heart before God. What does that look like for you when you pour out your heart before God, when you pause and, and, quote, pour out your heart? Is it praise and thanksgiving? Is it asking and seeking and knocking? You know, I can remember, I don't remember where it was, but somewhere in my first years as a, a Christian, just talking about prayer, somebody introduced me to the acronym ACTS, spelled like the book in the Bible, ACTS. And uh, it's because the church loves acronyms. The church loves uh, alliteration. You know, we like to sound like Dr. Seuss or your favorite rapper, right? But uh, the acronym ACTS stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication, right? Adoration. We give God praise. Give God our adoration, right? Confession is asking to receive forgiveness for the things we've done. Then you've got Thanksgiving, which is giving God thanks and gratitude for the things he's already given us. And then there's supplication where we're asking to receive those things we need. We're asking for provision. So in that, you see give and take, and then more give and take. And there's nothing inherently wrong with this. Jesus himself tells us, ask, seek, and knock. And then he doubles down on it, and he tells the parable of the persistent widow, along with other commands, to be persistent in your praying and your asking and your seeking and you're knocking. It's absolutely a reason for praying. So I'm not here to tell you that's not why we pray. You know, so much of our discourse in our culture is like, I'm right, you're wrong, and here's why. But I'm not here to topple that perspective of prayer, but I believe the definition is often lacking, and so our prayer life is often lacking. The word prayer, the idea of prayer, again, carries the power of life and death, but so often our definition of prayer, it's lacking life and depth. But as we mentioned last week, it's not just the definition of our words that sometimes go missing. Sometimes it's words altogether from our vocabulary. Like here in Psalm 62, right here in our Bible, is a word we often read over, hardly ever give a second thought, and it's Selah. In my New Living Translation, it says interlude, which speaks to the pause between acts in a play. The definition of the word is, is elusive. People say, oh, it means this, it means that. We're not really sure, right? Some people would say it means forever. What we see in the Psalms, it's a musical directive to get you to pause between verses. Whatever the word means, that's why it's there, to stop and think about what was just said. 
to let it marinate, right? A pause for contemplation, a pause from speaking or singing, a pause for silence. So between two Selahs in Psalm 62 is a complete thought. I, wanna, I want us to Selah tonight, to stop and think about it. It's verses 5 through 8, where David says, we read it before, but we'll read it again. It says, my soul, wait silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. You know, much like the psalm as a whole, this section starts with silence. Not the silence of resignation, but the silence of finding renewal in your refuge. The New Living Translation says in verse 5, only in God is my soul silent. And that word only is notable. Because where do you go for renewal when you're feeling stressed, when you're feeling surrounded by life? Where do you turn? David would say, only in God is my soul silent. But how often do we admittedly turn to distraction? You know, so often I, we think, you know, I would... Do this, that, or the third for some peace and some quiet. But then how often when we finally get it, how quickly do we turn to distraction? How comfortable are we in silence and how quickly do we turn to the closest monitor, whether it's our phone or the TV or the distraction that comes with it? And this isn't a knock on our phones or technology. This isn't some new thing that came with those. Blaise Pascal, I'm trying to say it right because Wayne and I were debating how to say it before uh, service. He's a 17th century theologian, really Renaissance man, did all kinds of stuff. But he wrote about the culture around him. Again, mind you, in the 17th century, in the 1600s. And he says, says the following, he says, take away their diversion and you will see them dried up with weariness. It is to be ushered into unhappiness as soon as we are reduced to thinking of self and have no diversion. He went on to say, I have discovered that all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own chamber. We don't know how to deal with silence. And it can be crippling. It can be crippling. It can cripple our relationship with God. The professor T. David Gordon said, the scriptures commend meditation on God's word and reflecting on truths, which require a certain affinity for solitude. If the digital world trains people to find solitude itself off-putting, then they can't have much quality time with God. Those are some heavy-hitting statements. It makes me think of elsewhere in Psalms where David prays in Psalm 51, creating me a pure heart. It's a key prayer because we see Jesus in the Gospels in Matthew 5, 8. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You know, in our church culture, we often uh, make that purity, what he's talking about there, synonymous with sexual purity. But what if purity is speaking as much about clarity as it is cleanliness? It's not just about keeping our lives clean, but keeping our lives uncluttered. Because purity in the purest, sorry, I couldn't think of a different word. Purity in the purest sense of the word can speak to what is clear versus what is cloudy. There's a photographer, he's an artist, and he's an author, Joe McNally, who says busyness is the enemy of clarity. You know, technology keeps us stirred up 24-7, reacting, stimulated, responding, busy, and sometimes we just need to say la, right? We need interludes between the busyness. Why? Because we need clarity. We need purity. Or we won't see God because our lives become cloudy. Or as, as David Gordon said, we won't have much quality time with God. I almost 
but I don't want to make a mess in faith church brought a, a pitcher in right with just some water in it where the sediment had settled to the bottom you could see through that you had a glass with water and sediment on the bottom but you stir that up and all of a sudden it becomes cloudy and so often in life we just stay stirred up stay stirred up stay stirred up stay stirred up and we just stay cloudy we never pause long enough for the sediment to settle and the water to become clear Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And that takes hitting pause, hitting a selah, right? Hitting some silence. And a question we could ask ourselves again and again and again in our digital age is, is God distant? Does he feel distant because he's distant or is it because I'm distracted, right? Does God feel distant because he's actually distant or am I just distracted? Teresa of Avila she once put it real bluntly. She said, God is not really silent. We're deaf. She pulled no punches on that one. And while we're not deaf in the permanent spiritual sense, we can distract ourselves to death and to deaf, to deafness. How often is God right next to us with his still small voice, but we keep turning to distraction? We need to learn to press pause. You know, a powerful verse in Psalms. Psalms 131 is a short psalm, and I think it's short for a reason because you read the content. Psalm 131 verse 2 says, I have calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child who no longer cries for its mother's milk. Yes, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So kind of like Spangled, I had to look up, okay, what are we talking about here with a weaned child? What does that mean? And so I look it up, and it means in his culture and cultures around the world, a child between about three and four years old. And I'm like, oh, got you. I can understand that because our son, he's three and a half. Raj is a, a ball of energy. He's constant motion. He's sheer enthusiasm. If you have a three or four-year-old or any kid around that age, all the things we see in Psalms, like cries of outrage, cries for justice, cries for help, your kid does not hesitate to do those things if he's three or four years old. But you know the moments that are rare, the moments that are beautiful, that are increasingly rare, that I enjoy is when Raj is calmed and quieted, like this verse where he's maybe got a bottle or he's tired, he's just laying on my chest on the couch. Doesn't happen often, <laughs> but I love it as a father. No words are spoken. Raj is nonverbal. He couldn't speak if he wanted to. No, no words are needed, though. It fills my tank as a father. And I tell people all the time, nothing has taught me about the heart of God the Father like being a father. I'm sure many of you can relate. And it speaks, this speaks to my heart again and again about the heart of God the Father. Like how much does he long to simply spend time with us? Whether or not we're, we're pouring out our hearts with words or not, he waits, as I do, with Raj for those increasingly rare but beautiful moments where we just sit in silence with him. And I love how if you just read a couple books further in the Old Testament, it's like God promises what David cashed in on. It says in Isaiah 66, 13, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. You know, these two words, silence and selah, will transform our prayer lives if we let them. Because while our definition of prayer isn't wrong in most cases, it just sometimes lacks depth. And as a result, it can cripple our prayer life. Like, think about these two words. We'll just close considering these two words. Transactional and relational. Transaction versus relation and relationship. It was a, Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, verses 7 through 8, when he says, When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. And then he says, therefore, pray like this. 
Jesus' thought here in verse 8 used to serve as a riddle for me. Like, it sparked questions for me, and it sparked so many questions for the people I've pastored, whether it was in youth ministry or adult ministry. Because there's two big truths here. God is sovereign, and yet prayer matters. But a common question, and one I've asked myself, is if God knows everything I need before I even ask him, he's all-powerful and all-loving, so he's going to work all things for my good. Why even waste my time praying? He already knows. So why? But you know that question, anybody else asked that question? Because I did for a while. <laughs> it reveals a lot about my perspective of prayer, about our perspective of prayer. And it reveals a lot about really our culture's effect on us. And scarily, it can reveal a lot about my heart about God. Because in our Western culture, I would say, yeah, we value prayer. Right? We understand that prayer is valuable. We see its worth. We practice this acronym, acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, give and take, more give and take. We often pray with the perspective that it's about two things, giving and getting. Right? It boils down to transaction, whether it's requesting or praising or asking or thanking. It fits neatly into our lives in this Western culture where so much is a matter of transaction. But what happens is prayer becomes an extension of doing for God and God doing for us rather than simply being with God. And again, I'm not saying that prayer is not transactional. We're asked by Jesus to ask, seek, and knock. But what we often miss out is the relational and the relationship. And as a result, our prayer life isn't transformational as it should be. And again, I can't tell you how much my nonverbal three-year-old has taught me about prayer. To put it blunt, I just realized sometimes I need to shut up. <laughs> to just sit in silence, to practice a selah, to practice a few minutes or longer of just sitting in silence and thinking or not thinking, right? Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, don't be hasty to speak and don't be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. For me, that means be more like Raj, just be. Be more like Psalm 131 where David said, like a weaned child calmed and quieted is my soul within me. You know, there's all these takes over the hundreds of years since Jesus taught it. What does it mean to come to him like a child? There's all these great teachings based on it, but what if that's it? Come calm, still, with a quiet trust, like a weaned child with its parents. You know, I'd argue that this trust and relationship should come first. It's key. It's foundational. In Psalm 62, the silence comes before the pouring out before God. David speaks in depth the beginning of Psalm 62 about how he relates to God as his rock, salvation, defense, and refuge before he ever gets to asking. And I think that's key and foundational to prayer. Because, again, for many in our consumer culture, prayer becomes first and foremost about the transaction. And as a result, again, the, one of the more common issues with prayer that arises within people that I pass or even with myself is when we ask for something and we don't get the yes. We don't get the answer that we wanted. And I realize in my heart the root reason for that problem is for me prayers become transactional and not relational. Because if you start with relationship, you build trust. You start dating somebody long enough, you begin to build trust for that person. And it's when you trust him as father that you'll find peace in all of God's answers. I say no to Raj all the time. <laughs> and that's not going to stop anytime soon. Right? And when I do that, it's because I... I I'm doing what's best for him, even when he doesn't understand it. And so often that's God with us. And maybe you would say, well, you don't know what God has said no to. Right? I've prayed for loved ones that have passed away. I've prayed for healing that never came. Let me just recommend, read Grief Observed. It's C.S. Lewis wrestling with all of this 
when he was praying for his wife who had cancer who passed away. And maybe you say, yeah, you don't know what God has said no to. You know how many tearful prayers Steph and I have prayed at the ceiling <laughs> as she's walked through chronic pain, degenerative conditions? Sooner or later, you've prayed so much. And for so long, for the same thing, it feels like I've just run out of words, God. Like, either my words are hitting the ceiling or falling to the floor or dying in my mouth. And your feelings go numb or they go haywire. Prayer seems silly, like a self-delusion, divine trick. If I'm honest, sometimes it's not the silence I create that bothers me. It's God's silence. What do you do when God seems silent? Some would walk away, right? For some, it breaks their faith. This is so often when we learn the lesson that Job learned, right? We want answers. <laughs> we want God to give us answers. We want God to give us a response. God wants to give us himself. He wants to give us relationship. And in that, we find the answers. So often I want the results from my prayer. When I'm asking for God wants relationship. And I have to ask myself in those moments where I'm struggling, am I praying because I want a result? Or am I praying because I want relationship with God the Father? You know, the author and pastor, Jenny Ortland, put it more beautifully than I could when she was writing. This is amidst a much bigger piece that she wrote where she says, in the silence, in the waiting, patience chooses to declare, Lord, I love you. I know I don't love you as I ought, but I want to love you more than your answer to my prayers. If I could have the worship team come up. Again, it's when you trust God first as father that you'll be able to find peace in his answers, even if that answer seems like silence. It's when you know him as father that you can pray as Jesus Christ did when he was asking for the cup to be passed and he didn't, he didn't hear the answer that he wanted. Not my will, but your will be done. As he's praying, those, as he's praying that prayer to God the Father, right, the disciples are falling asleep, kept on watching in prayer probably for two to three hours if you read the passage, the way it works out. The math is probably two to three hours where they were there at watch, Jesus was praying, and they were falling asleep. Because if you think about it, two to three hours is a long time. If all your prayer life is is, is making requests and thanking God for things, sometimes, you know, after an hour, you're going to run out of requests. You're going to run out of your, your list. If that's all prayer is for you, maybe after an hour you'll fall asleep. But what about when it's relationship? That never ends, even in silence. Jesus comes back and he's basically they're asleep and he's juice transit. Are you serious, fellas? <laughs> Are you serious? You know, as much as we may complain about God's seeming lack of presence, God often has much more reason to complain about our lack of presence because we won't say la. We won't pause long enough to let the sediment settle. We need to let say la and silence elevate our prayer life again. Blessed are the pure in heart, uncluttered and clear, for they will see God. And if we could just even just put this in practice, we got time. Before Steph comes up, just want to take two to three minutes of silence. You know what happens when you sit in silence? It immediately gets flooded. It immediately becomes confusing and frustrating because silence gets filled so easily with demands, needs, disappointments, future appointments, memories, uh, things that are on your calendar, things that bothered you that happened earlier that day. All that happens within like the first moments of silence. It's not about emptying yourself in, in that notion of meditation, but it's about returning to, to something, whether it's the cross, a verse from Psalm 62, a, a word, grace, love, and spending time in silence. Because you know, after if you do it for an hour, 
eventually it just you can feel like the sediment has settled <laughs> you can pray with clarity you can think with clarity blessed are the pure in heart for they will see god let's just take some time to pause even now in silence so mike you sound beautiful but let's just pause in silence let's stop playing and let's just for two minutes three minutes spend time in silence and pray you can close your eyes bow your head kneel stand whatever you need to do Let's cast aside distraction, focus on Jesus, focus on the cross. Two minutes. Sorry, that was, that was unplanned. But it says in Psalm 62, my soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. So as we close tonight, if you want to stand, we're going to go into worship. We're going to sing the I think pre-chorus, whatever, pre-chorus, bridge, chorus, whatever it is of, of the song defender. Let's reflect on, he's our defender. As David says here, he's our salvation. He's our defense. He's our refuge. Who is God to you? Truly how you define God is more meaningful than any word in existence. So let's sing this song. 
And if while you were in silence, you realized, man, I got an itch you need to scratch. You need prayer. Caitlin and Amanda, they would love to pray for you. I would love to pray for you. But Steph's going to lead us in worship and sing Defender.